But first, you might have noticed that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has had a busy week jetting across Asia to attend ASEAN and the East Asia Summit. He's also held bilateral meetings with important regional leaders, including Indonesia's Joko Widodo and the Philippines' Ferdinand Marcos, plus the Chinese Premier, Li Chung. Albanese will end his week in Delhi, India, at the G20, which begins today. The Indian capital has undergone some serious beautification works in the lead-up to this meeting, including, controversially, the eviction of beggars from the city centre. Now, the Prime Minister there, Narendra Modi, has staked his reputation on pulling off a successful summit. But will the whole thing come to nothing? Will leaders fail to even agree on a joint declaration at the end of it all? And is the grouping going to be fatally undermined by China and Russia? They appear to be more interested in the BRICS in which they're the dominant players. Joining me now is Dr Azan Tarapur from Stanford University, also a non-resident fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Much of his work focuses on Indian foreign policy. Welcome, Azan. Hi, Hamish. Thanks very much for having me. Before we get into the G20, there's some suggestion that India might actually mark this occasion uh, by (laughs) changing its name to Bharat. Why? So it's not such so much of a change from one to the other. It's more, I think, highlighting one rather than the other, right? The name Bharat itself is not controversial. It's not new. Uh, it's on Indian money. It's in the Indian constitution, which famously calls India, you know, India that is Bharat, right? So they use both, uh, both names because basically since the freedom struggle, since before independence, it's very difficult in India to come to a consensus on many issues. There's there's divisions between the North and the South, between Hindi speakers and non-Hindi speakers. And this sort of difference between India and Bharat kind of reflects those types of debates and, and that difficulty in coming up with a single answer to anything. Uh, and so... And do you interpret uh, this as, as Modi and India potentially throwing off some of the post-colonial shackles or is this more to do with Hindu nationalism? How do you interpret it? It's hard to separate the two. Certainly the the boosters of these types of changes would suggest it's just part of a decolonisation agenda and so a lot of that revolves around changing the symbols of India, right? So even in the military, uh, there have been moves to change the music that military bands play, to change flags, to change uniforms, all as part of this decolonization agenda, as it's called. But, you know, the problem is that when you change it from one thing to another thing, it depends on what that new thing is. And India, like I was saying, is a big country. It contains multitudes. And so any attempt to stamp a particular vision of what India is in a country as big and diverse as India is going to encounter a lot of resistance from people who are not the majority. Uh, This G20 summit is a huge moment for Narendra Modi. Joe Biden has just touched down in the last few hours in India. But the Chinese President Xi Jinping decided to skip both the ASEAN and the East Asia summit and will miss the G20. Putin obviously is not going to be there either. And there's some suggestion that particularly on the part of Xi, this is a deliberate and calculated snub to Modi. Explain that. So, 
with the, with the caveat that I'm not a China expert and with the caveat that even China experts can't come to a sort of definitive answer to this, right? There's a lot of speculation about his motivations. There's many possibilities. Some people, there's been some high-profile press reporting suggesting that this decision is the product of internal debates or internal reprimands against Xi Jinping. There's, as you said, there's the idea that it's a snub to India, which China sees as, as one of its rivals in, in global politics. Uh, but there is also this very plausible idea that Xi Jinping, that Beijing sees some international institutions like the, BRIC, like the BRICS and the SCO, institutions that it dominates or can shape more easily as, as preferable. Hence, uh, China's engagement with other institutions is, is downplayed. Uh, I would also point out, though, that Biden also missed the ASEAN summit uh, and that, you know, is not necessarily a reflection of a, of a sort of deliberate snub, but in, in the US case, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an indication that countries put different stock in different institutions depending on, on what they can deliver. But if China wants to emphasise the BRICS, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, China India is in that. Uh, why yep. offend the Indian hosts of the G20? <laughs> because, because the two countries are competitors, right? So the BRICS was founded some years ago when there was a sense that India and China, among other countries, uh, favoured a multipolar world, uh, that is to say, a, a world where the US and, and Western Europe does not, does not make all the decisions. Now, as things have evolved and as the India-China rivalry has sharpened, there is a growing sense that forums, at least, uh, that forums like the BRICS, at least in Indian minds, uh, are not a symbol of solidarity against the West, but there are in fact forums where countries like India and China may compete against each other. And the G20 is no different. And what's the shape of the contest between China and India? I mean, it's not just size, it's not just economic might, there's this huge disputed border between the two powers. What else defines Correct. the contest? It's, it, it, look, it plays out in many different dimensions. Uh, as you said, the, the one that has dominated the rivalry since 2020 has been the border. This is a border that's been unsettled uh, since the 1950s, essentially. Uh, they fought a war over it. And since 19, uh, correction, since 2020, uh, when China launched multiple incursions into, into a part of India called Ladakh across that, that disputed border, that crisis has essentially dominated, has overshadowed the bilateral relationship. And India, which previously used to say, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on the border and get on with the rest of the relationship, since 2020, India has said, no, we cannot just get on with the rest of the relationship until this border situation is, is resolved, or at least some semblance of, of normalcy returns to the border. But the, the rivalry encompasses everything from that border to, uh, you know, strategic influence across the whole Indo-Pacific and competition over everything from, from, from high technology uh, to, to, to military issues, despite the fact that these, are, these two countries remain, like, like Australia and the US do, remain economically close trading partners, the rivalry is is 
structural, right? It, it, it's, it's impossible to evade. Uh, some years ago, I was up on a reporting trip in Ladakh and I was shocked when I was told by uh, some of the, the Indian officials I was speaking to that there was actually more Indian military on the, on the disputed Chinese border side than there were on the, on the Pakistan side of, of Kashmir. Is there any move towards resolving the border issues between these huge powers? No. Uh, so, so it, I mean, you know, it depends on, on exactly what, what they were suggesting. It, we shouldn't forget that the India-Pakistan uh, line of control and international border also remain um, heavily militarised. Um, but on the India-China border, uh, since 2020, since the incursions in Ladakh, uh, there has been a significant militarisation on both sides. Both sides rushed to reinforce the border with tens of thousands of troops. Uh, they have begun the process of what they call disengagement from sort of friction points where they were facing off against each other at very close distance. But that process is not complete. And even more worryingly, the sort of broader militarization where both sides have reinforced areas close to the border uh, appears to be a semi-permanent situation now, at least semi-permanent, where, where there's no end in sight. And even if the two sides can come to some sort of modus vivendi on the border, it seems unlikely that they will consider the border to be pacified, right, to be, to be calm. There's always going to be now this sense of distrust, at least on, on India's part. So to the specifics of this G20 meeting and the agenda, what challenges might be possible to, to address or, or reach consensus on? Or is that out of the question given the position that, that Russia and China seem to be taking? I think it's useful when we're talking about the G20 to think about it, to disaggregate it, to think about it in different pillars or tracks, right? So certainly on the political track, which is the one that will probably dominate headlines, it is, I think, in 2023 going to be impossible to get a consensus uh, because of uh, China and Russia, especially because of the Ukraine war, which seems to be a, a divide that cannot be bridged. Unlike last year, incidentally, when in the Bali summit, uh, it was India which helped to bring about a consensus on the political side. I think this time round, that trend has gone too far and, and, and a consensus will be impossible. On the other hand, on the finance track, uh, of the G20, we do expect to see some deliverables. Uh, and this is an agenda that's been heavily shaped by India. Uh, but we we hope to see some deliverables that, you know, in contrast to the political track, will actually be more lasting and more substantial. Things like reform to multinational development banks, uh, like the World Bank, things like, you know, more what they call finance inclusivity using Indian models of, of digital public infrastructure. So there are measures like that that the that the technocrats, that the finance track is trying to 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 agree upon, which will arguably have a more substantive, although lower profile impact. And when you say the Ukraine war is a, is a sticking point, would the intention of the host nation be that the that the communique at the end says some kind of statement that is clear in condemning the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? 
So it's again, that's never going to happen precisely because Russia is a member, right? And and it has partners like China as well. So last year, as a point of contrast, uh, the 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 best thing that they could, or the the most that they could say, uh, while arriving at a consensus was that this is not an era of war. And that was language that that the Indian government had used previously and that was seen as being the the, the most that all parties could agree to. Uh, there was certainly not any condemnation of Russia specifically or any mention specifically of the aggression in Ukraine. It was more just this vague, veiled statement about we don't like war. In 2023, we can't even get to that. Obviously, a, a forum like the G20 is significant for Australia because we're at the table uh, and it has it has carried a lot of weight, uh, certainly since the, the global financial crisis as a, as a grouping. Yeah. But there's some analysis suggesting that, that what we're seeing now really is the disintegration of things like the G20 as a, as a global force. Do you take that yeah. view? Uh, yes and no. Again, there are things for example, on the finance track that can be usefully agreed to, that, that can actually make a material impact in the lives of people around the world. So in that, in that sense, um, I think there is still some utility to it. But the broader point is that, yeah, certainly large institutions like the G20 are in a moment of crisis, right? They, it's certainly not the case that these institutions can be the place where major powers like Russia, China, the US and Europe, India, Japan can can uh, uh, resolve or manage major clashes of, of interests. That is no longer going to happen through multilateral organisations like the G20. And that's why I think you see as countries recognise the lack of utility of these to resolve political disputes, you see the rise of other informal new groupings, what we would call minilateral groupings like the Quad, because there's a recognition, and, and the Indian government's been very explicit about this, there's a recognition that existing institutions are not fit for purpose to manage the challenges that confront the world today, and so we need to turn to smaller, more issue specific groupings uh, like the Quad, for example. Uh, Arzan, great to have you on the program this morning. Thank you very much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks, Hamish. Uh, Dr. Arzan Tarapur is a research scholar at Stanford University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.